0: This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow The Gist at Slate Gist? It's Monday, November 5th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And when the story is told in the aftertimes, how, Father, how did we come to dine upon the flesh of the fallen? For it is the only sustenance we are given as the rivers now run red with blood of the vanquished and the sky burns a bright orange, the orange of the respected leader. All praise be the leader, all respect to him. But tell me, Father, when did it all change? From the stolen books you have secreted to me. They speak of an Obama. Was this the turning point? No, son. It was a bit after that. Well, what of this co-me? This announcement by a co-me? And is that the same as the Me Too I have read of? "'It is confusing, from the way the books are burned and singed around the edges, "'and we only have partial transcripts of the gateway pundit to construct our stories. "'But was that it? Was that the turning point, the co-me?' "'Well, his decision brought about our respected leader, praise be to the leader. "'But no, it was not the Ko or the Ko as he pronounced it, "'when he was allowed to be heard from. "'Well, well what, what, was it the election of the leader, father?' Was that the point that it all ended and we were driven underground? Well, in a way, son, but there was one more chance that we can all remember. One day when we all had an opportunity to come together and rest away from the respected leader, he of such respect and high energy, it was called the midterms. The midterms. I have heard of these midterms. In the record... The shepherd has spoken of them. Ah, yes, shepherd Smith, a good man, was right on occasion. He may no longer be allowed to speak. But yes, son, these were the midterms, and that, that was the last chance. So tell me, father, what happened in these midterms? Well, son, it rained. Pretty much clouds, intermittent showers for much of the northeast, tornado watch in parts of the south and Tennessee, and a steady rain turning to thunderstorms by midday Tuesday. It was all foretold. Election day
1: is coming up, and it's too bad we can't vote for better weather, because this red and blue on the map, it has nothing to do with politics. Instead, we'll see some areas of snow, and also, we are concerned about the threat for severe weather.
0: Oh, Father, so it was not only the good shepherd, Smith, who was allowed to talk in the before times? That is correct, son. We even were allowed to hear from wise men, such as... UAB Professor Larry Powell. Incumbents seem to have an advantage when it comes to getting people to the polls, rain or shine. Sunny Day uh, benefits the uh, challengers more than the uh, incumbents. The incumbents' voters are going to get to the polls regardless. It's the challengers who face the extra challenge of actually getting people to go out and uh, vote against somebody. A professor. Father, what is a professor? Well, that is now an enemy of the people profession, son. But, father, how is it that the formerly free people would not behave freely on this one day because of rain? Well, turnout was the key, son. I have never lived in a free society, yet that somehow strikes me as uninsightful. Of course, turnout's going to be the key. But in the time when the wise men and women could speak, who would tell the free men... To delay their freedoms. Perhaps you have not heard the words of CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchaw. We have the potential for some severe storms. Now, keep in mind, it's Monday. Several of these states still do early voting on Monday. If you live in one of them, it may actually be better for you to wait until Election Day to do the voting. So, Father, you are saying that we had a chance to live above ground to live freely, to talk freely, to say things of the respected leader that we didn't necessarily have to say under penalty. My son is only joking, if the respected leader is listening. Yes, Father, of course I am joking. But what you are saying is that we are now a subterranean human flesh-eating race in a perpetual state of fear because it rained? Well, son, it's a little more complicated than that. There was a joke that Robert De Niro made at the Tonys, and there was this thing Samantha Bee said also... There was this time when the be-robed man was almost made to wear a lesser robe, but don't worry, he got his robe. Still, he went through a little bit to get there. It is called the Kavanaugh effect. Oh, Kavanaugh, that is how we live in caves and gnaw the flesh of the dead for nourishment. No, no, different Kavanaugh effect. Anyway, elections were complicated and maybe too complicated for us, and now we no longer have to worry about choices because the darkness is always upon us except for the orange dawn and the constant fire where Greenland used to be. Father, if you had one message to give our ancestors on the very day before the rains hit, what would that message be? I would say that no matter what, you need to go out and vote. That's a little on the nose, Dad. Little preachy, huh? No, I mean, you're eating great-grandfather's nose. You said you'd save it for me. And this has been... Post-apocalyptic anxiety over the dumb shit that can happen to get in the way of a last gasp rebuke of an extremely bad president theater. The part of the son was played by Macaulay Culkin, and the part of the father was, of course, Robert De Niro. Fuck Trump. Why would you play that? Why would you why would you remind people of that? We are doomed now. On the show today, I asked the question that literally no one is asking. What about centrism? But first, he will be all over your TVs tomorrow and tonight, but he is here now, MSNBC's Steve Kornacki. Okay, full disclosure, he was actually here a few days ago, but you might be listening to this tomorrow, so how are you complaining? Would you really want me, by the way, occupying the brain space of Steve Kornacki on this very important day just for your amusement? No matter where we go in a day, Steve Kornacki's new book, The Red and the Blue, offers a description of how we got here. the red and the blue there were once a couple of primary colors and what happened to yellow funny story about yellow it'll come around later in our tale but now the red and the blue mean a couple of kinds of states a couple of ways of thinking and really a gigantic divide in america where did it all start god no well the colors maybe we could debate rainbows forever the start pinpointed by my guest, Steve Kornacki. It was in the 1990s, and it is the subject of his new book, The Red and the Blue, the 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. Steve Kornacki, thanks. Thanks for coming by. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So the 90s, it's it's fitting that it's your first book because the events that you describe actually do map on to your consciousness as a person in the world and a thinker about politics, right? This was the stuff that you were watching as a little kid going, it's exciting, but I don't know why i understand
1: it yeah it's i remember so many of the events obviously so many of the major characters even even the minor ones i kind of you know had you know sort of fragments of knowledge about mm-hmm. um so many of those characters are still on the political stage today though you know, refusing to Gingrich, wait, right, on, You know, but, Yeah, you got just today, you know, the Clintons are, are are about to go out on tour. Hillary Clinton's answering questions about Bill Clinton. Newt Gingrich is still all over the place. So they're still so relevant yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. But I, I also think that one of the things I felt just just living through it um, the first time around was it, it felt to me like it was all building towards something. Yes. Something big was going to result from all of this sort of political warfare in the 90s. I don't think I ever would have thought it was this, but I think a generation
0: later, we're at the point where we can kind of say, yeah, this is what it was leading to. And we probably should have realized why it was happening beyond the personalities of the people involved. And I don't think it was pointed out to me at the time as much as I understand it now in retrospect, that this is all a consequence of the ideological sorting of the parties. You and I right now in this conversation, we, we should talk about specific tactics that Gingrich pulled and specific dynamics. But that is the big overlay. When you had political parties for centuries, that could mean different things in different parts of the country. It was like, you know, the genome of canine, and there was health throughout the genome. But then when you start having purebreds, you have hip dysplasia. You know, this is what I think is going on with the parties. And then the question is, did Gingrich always have a strategy or did he always know that certain tactics were going to play?
1: Gingrich, I think, had a a strategy to nationalize politics. Yeah, because I think what, what, what animated him was this this split that he was starting to see. Think of it this way. He comes to Congress in 1978 on his third try. He gets elected in 78 and he's looking at a country where the Republican Party just a couple of years earlier with Richard Nixon was capable of winning 49 states. Uh, Massachusetts, you know, the one McGovern state, 61% of the vote, one of the most thorough landslides we've ever seen in a presidential election. And yet this same Republican Party that's capable of that in a national presidential election is incapable of even getting within spitting distance of the House. I mean, at that point, when Gingrich gets there, it's been a generation in the minority. And it's not like we don't have midterm elections in the 70s that are, you know, we have one coming up where the Democrats need 23 seats. They may get there, they may not, but it's totally doable for them. You didn't have doable, no, you had through. 90
0: and 100 seat right. majority. enormous, right. enormous yeah.
1: advantages for the Democrats. So Gingrich looked at that and said, well, that's the missing link here. You've got, you know, Tip O'Neill was the House Speaker when Newt Gingrich got there. And the famous line from Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. Mm-hmm. And, and so people sort of, you know, they made their judgment about political party based on what was in their backyard. And Newt said, well, you know what? Look at George McGovern, who lost those forty nine states to Nixon. Look what he represented culturally. You know it was it was activists it, you know, who who got behind him anti-war cultural liberalism, all of that sort of thing. He said, "Look, if you can make every voter in the country see a choice between a conservative Republican party and a Democratic party of McGovernism." We're never going to
0: lose another election. So that was the opportunity he saw. It should have taken, I think it should have taken someone else, the word you use is nationalized. Republicans do well nationally. A Republican will crush in the South, will win the South. There was a Southern strategy. It would seem so glaringly obvious that someone said, what we're doing with the presidential race, we need to do that with the Mississippi 3rd District and the Texas 12th District and all these places that go for the Republican in the presidential election and keep putting Democrats in Congress.
1: And I think one of the things that, that happened, too, was that the Democrats who were getting elected to Congress, though, from the South, weren't liberals. They were conservatives. They were more conservative than right. members of the Republican Party in the House. You had these conservative Democrats in the South who keep getting reelected, and then you would keep having Republican presidents, and they'd vote with the Republican presidents. They'd vote with Nixon. They'd vote with Reagan on his tax cuts, and they'd go home and they'd tell their, their voters, hey, you like Reagan? Well, I vote with Reagan all the time, and then they'd get reelected. And, and Gingrich, basically, you know, it was frustrating to him, and it was frustrating to a lot of Republicans, but he basically said what you need to do is you need to create much clearer and sharper distinctions between the parties so that the message to the voters back in those districts is you, you may like this democrat you're voting for this conservative democrat but they're empowering a party that's right. fundamentally hostile to your values gingrich did this thing that was unthinkable in congress at the time he said he's gonna he wants to go after and take down the speaker of the house jim Wright, on ethics charges he went after jim Wright on ethics he's trying to shoot the general basically yeah he didn't do this in the house but the republicans at that point Looked at what Wright had just done. He'd been doing that kind of thing. And they said, you know what? Let's let our attack dog loosen him. And of course, Gingrich takes down Jim Wright. That puts Gingrich in the House leadership. And from there... That's the guy who confronts Bill Clinton and I think changes American politics. In the How
0: movies. legit were the ethics charges? It was like $7,000 in book royalties.
1: It was, yeah, it was more, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a book. It was, it was like a pamphlet. Oh, and, really? And I, all have these, you yeah. seen the book? Yeah, I've seen it. I've so never, this, you're not gonna I've go never f- held a copy right, of that it's, book. It is, it's a collection of his speeches. Oh, wow. <laughs> imagine swore, the royalty you know, money there. <laughs> and this was, you know, this was not exactly Cicero here or something. <laughs> right, and um, right. what it was, there's there's rules in the House about royalties that you can accept. Yeah. So he's essentially getting a 55% royalty on this book which is unheard of in the in the uh, publishing industry But yes. friends supporters wealthy folks around fort worth which is where he was from could buy the book could buy it in bulk know that the money was going to him right it's just and, a way to give him some money but he didn't make much money off
0: it right it ra- but it raised all sorts of conflict of it i right. mean i think it was about 55 grand something like that under normal times would he have gotten should he have gotten just admonished and a slap on the wrist if we weren't so radicalized it's a it's a fair question um, I would say one of the, the, the turning
1: points for Gingrich in that push was he got joined by common cause, you know, common cause, which more on the left, you know, good yeah. government group forming post Watergate. You could make a case that Wright should have gone for that. Yeah. Uh, should have been gone for that. The interesting thing was that when Wright finally resigned you know, June 1st, 1999, he gives his speech on the house floor. He, he, ought, he frames it as a sacrifice. He says, I consider my resignation, a sacrifice paraphrasing here that will help to cleanse this institution of what has infected it. And he's basically saying, this will be fine, Newt, you get this one, but this is the last one you get here. Yeah. And of course, it is is—it is actually something very similar. You know, Gingrich, uh, uh, when he becomes speaker in 1994, signs this book deal uh, with Harper Collins, which is owned by uh, Rupert Murdoch, gets a $4.5 million of, uh, book advance on it and raises all these questions about ethics and conflict, all the things he was raising about Jim Wright comes back to, to bite him. Yeah, but at
0: least on the sexual stuff with Bill Clinton, there is no hypocrisy when it comes to Newt Gingrich. <laughs> well, we, uh, that, that was, as we found, found, Found out later, Newt had some things going on at the same time. Yes. Um so as a political science major at Emory University. Uh which is New King, which is <laughs> not where I yeah. taught, but where he right. was. West school. Georgia College, yes, yeah. yes. And I signed up for a class, Political Communication in the Soviet Union, in the fall. And when the class convened in the spring, it was called Political Communication in the Former Soviet <laughs> Union. <Right. laughs> but the other thing is, I kept getting taught. This was 92 and 94. I was taking classes in 94. Look, the one thing we know is incumbency has such an advantage. There will never, probably in our lifetime, be a Republican House of Representatives. And goddamn, were they wrong. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it, it had
1: take taken on a turn back then, the permanent Democratic majority.
0: Yeah. And at that point, 1994, it had been 40
1: years. And this was, I, I think this was key to Gingrich's rise too. Uh, so much of my book is about all of these wars in the 1990s. But to even have Gingrich in the position he was in the 90s to, to pick a lot of these fights with Clinton, he needed to complete this rise from the back benches in the late 70s and, and through the 80s. That You looked at it, this guy arrives in Congress, the Democrats have, have run this thing for a, a generation. He tells Republicans, I'm going to lead you to the majority someday. They think he's nuts. It's Newt Gingrich. He talks about world historical things and McCarthyism. He's using all the stuff that we recognize now, but it's not landing with his colleagues. This is just not the way people talk there. But what Gingrich slowly got Republicans to see, he was telling them, you're being trampled. You're used to being walked all over. You've gotten comfortable with it. And the old guard didn't like hearing it, but every couple of years, new members would come in and then There'd be moments when the Democrats would behave that way. I mean, 40 years in power is going to make you take a lot of things for granted institutionally. Right. The missing ingredient, it turned out. Because it, it frustrated Republicans for all those years, even as Gingrich starts getting traction and they're doing these things in the House, these dramatic things, they're still getting clobbered in, in, in midterm elections, uh, and they're, they're no closer to a majority. All it took, really, it was Bill Clinton getting elected, mm-hmm. and now you've got a Democratic president with a massive Democratic majority in the House and the Senate, and Clinton in '93, '94 moves on a very ambitious agenda. There's a lot of pent-up stuff. It's it's health care reform, but not a very liberal agenda. Oh, I, I think na- I think doing health care reform. I think doing a tax hike. You know, '93. Right. I think those were the stimulus NAFTA I, I would put in a different category but I think that Clinton in 93, 94... okay that was
0: before welfare reform. yes yeah, yes and
1: I think Clinton 94 changed yes. the trajectory of Clinton's presidency but those first two years, if Mario Cuomo had been president for instance you know mm-hmm. great liberal hero from New York, I don't think in terms of the agenda it's it's much different than what Clinton ends up pursuing
0: pursuing but he doesn't achieve health care he doesn't right. achieve a well lot because of what it. he yeah. meets
1: that's that's the turning point I think because Gingrich has now full tactical control over the Republican party in Congress. And this this is the first time a Democratic president comes in and meets this kind of Republican Party that doesn't want to give an inch, that sees in every one of these agenda items Clinton puts out there, not a chance to compromise and get half of what they're looking for, but a chance to draw a line and say they're the party of big government, of waste, of liberalism run run amok. And we're protecting you, the average overlooked American. And they they ride it to, you know, 1994, 54 seat gain, the Republican Revolution.
0: Um, How big a deal was C-SPAN in all of this, which I think is a question that's never been uttered before <laughs> <laughs> some of my some of my favorite uh, uh, parts of the research for this was going through the, the c-span archives Such which are archive. all online yeah. everything they've ever and aired very searchable yep. and yep it's by amazing term, yeah. so you, yeah, all these
1: these newt moments you can go back and find and you can watch them it's, it's often um, like
0: a bar on the bottom uh and interference digital interference yeah. so
1: it's not the best
0: feed right. but yeah no
1: it's like <laughs> watching your antenna tv in the 80s or something. But um, what Newt recognized, he comes to Congress in 1979, which is the same year that C-SPAN, they throw the C-SPAN camera in the chamber, and they're going to televise everything, and they're going to have a cable channel devoted to it. This is the cable industry's sort of, you know, nod to civic uh, responsibility. And the cable industry, remember, people are are just for the first time getting it everywhere. The, the 80s, it explodes, right. but most people at the start of the decade didn't have it. So Newt found this, there's this provision in the House rules that says, basically, at the close of business every day, any member can take the floor for however am- amount of time they want for any reason they want to right. just talk
0: right and which is usually nobody used way it. to go local boys right right here's the
1: principal in my district who retired for 40 years we yeah. salute you mrs yeah. mrs smith um gingrich starts claiming the time and his fellow members are like yeah you have it. you know you're talking to an empty chamber what do you want to do that for he's talking to the camera and he's got a, you know a band of about a half a dozen allies they're not talking about you know page 26 of this bill should have a comma here and appear they are talking about national themes the corrupt democratic Party, the corrupt Democrat machine, the opportunity society that Republicans want to offer, they are producing what we would now call a cable news talk show. It's, it's the Sean Hannity show being done on the floor of the house for an hour a night on C-SPAN. And people are, are going through their dials,
0: you know, at home. They don't keep rating statistics, but, you know, some of them are, are catching it. and Yeah. Who's this guy? There were only start- like 40 channels back then. Yeah. And three of them were showing the same. Beastmaster, I think. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that, yeah. that was in heavy rotation back <laughs> in the day. But, okay, so there were no, there were no ratings. Um, how big an impact did it have? I, I have no way of knowing. The it impact- seemed to us— as you more than me, Maybe not. I don't know. It seemed to us like we're political junkies. We remember that. Something was going on. But did it get written about in the mainstream press? It, it got and-
1: written about because he used it to force this showdown with Tip O'Neill. Yeah. And what he did was in one of those late night sessions, Gingrich and his allies called out 10 Democratic members by name and, and almost accused him of treason. And one of the Democrats they called out by name was Eddie Boland, who is from Massachusetts and was Tip O'Neill's best friend and roommate in Washington, D.C. for years. Yeah. And O'Neill, as a speaker of the House, has the power to call up C-SPAN and say, You know, I turn the camera off or whatever. And he calls them up and says, I want you to take that camera and pan the entire chamber. Show that audience that this, you know, this clown is talking to an empty chamber. And, you know, he's trying to make my friend look like a coward. My friend isn't there. No one's there. So he does it. C-SPAN does that and Gingrich catches wind with it and now he's been given you know a gift from the gods here Gingrich you know accuses you know O'Neill this is the dictatorial abuse of power this is McCarthyism of the left and he demands time to address uh, the entire house to explain this so full session the house is full you know 10 a.m official business day O'Neill recognizes the gentleman from Georgia and then announces from the speaker's podium he says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to sit among the members because I'm very interested to hear this and O'Neill mm-hmm. thinks he's going to get some kind of apology and Gingrich starts talking and 10 minutes in it's 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 all the Gingrich stuff you would expect. And O'Neill boils over and he stands up and he demands to be recognized and Gingrich knows where this is going and he, he recognizes Tip O'Neal and O'Neill just says, I want you to know well, you stood in that floor and you did the lowest thing I've ever seen in 32 years here. Yeah. Trent Lott, who's standing right behind uh, Gingrich, one of his allies, says, uh, Mr. Speaker, I, I move that the Speaker's words be taken down. Right. Because Tip O'Neill's broken House rules. He's you, directly attacked the You can't member. say
0: you. You have to say the member. Yes. And Sometimes they let you get away with it if it's not so bad. Right. But you literally can't say you in the House. And, yeah. it's,
1: and it's the, by our standards in politics, say the words that O'Neill said were not that inflammatory. Right. Right. But what it was, was the face of of the permanent Democratic Party, the Speaker of the House, who's been there since the early 1950s, the leader of this, they have like a 100-seat majority, and this third-term gadfly from Georgia, whose own Republican colleagues have not taken him seriously, now has the parliamentarian scrambling to try to find some way not to reprimand Tip O'Neill. Mm-hmm. There's 15-minute break you know, as they try to figure this out, and you can watch this on the C-SPAN clip, there's Republicans coming up to Gingrich, he's standing in the well of the House, coming up to him who have not, these are Republicans who wouldn't give him the time of day, yeah. until that moment in his career shaking his hand, patting him on the back. The parliamentarian comes back. They, ha- they rule you know, in favor of the Republicans. The Speaker's words are taken down. Never happened to a Speaker of the House before. Gingrich gets to keep talking. When he finishes, he leaves the floor. There's an ovation, a standing ovation on the Republican side, and he's, he's not a gadfly anymore. Now he's giving him a taste of, this is what you guys haven't been doing. This is what you guys could be doing, and this is what it feels like. And they start getting mail. You know, the folks back home are watching C-SPAN at night, and say, asking them, why aren't there more of you like Newt Gingrich? And they they can they pick up on it pretty quick that this
0: is first, it's what their voters want, but it's what they want too. The red and the blue the 1990s and the birth of political tribalism. Oh, it's so much more than that. It's basically an analysis of uh, our current Michigas, if you will. Steve Kornacki is the author. He is MSNBC and NBC News national political correspondent, and you'll see him at the big board every day between now and the election. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for hosting the show a couple weeks ago. That's right, yes. No, thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections, and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. I know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions too. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that event. And now the spiel. Let's talk about some of these congressional races. So many races. I'd like to recap a couple for you. You got Rick Scott. You got George Scott. You got Scott Perry. You got Rick Perry. Well, you don't really got Rick Perry. Forget about him. He's in the cabinet, not elected. But you know, Rick Scott. He's running for Senate, trailing a little bit in Florida to Bill Nelson. And those two other Scots, George Scott and Scott Perry, Battle of the Scots, Pennsylvania's 10th congressional district, pretty close. Other Scots on the ballot, these guys will probably win. Scott Peters, Scott Tipton. This guy will lose, Scott Walker. He's running for the at-large seat in Delaware. This guy might lose, Scott Walker. He's running for governor of Wisconsin. You got Austin Scott and David Scott and Joshua Scott. In Virginia, definitely going to win Robert Scott. But then in South Carolina, Democrat Robert Williams, he's going to lose. So you got Robert Williams, Roger Williams of Texas, William Timmons. Did I say William Timmons? Oh, yeah. You got Tim Ryan and Tim Rogers. Paul Ryan? No, he's leaving. Tim Ryan's in. Tim Rogers, Roger Williams, Robert Williams, William Timmons, and Rick Scott. We mentioned Rick Scott. Okay. You know, there are so many races to watch. I wanted an organizing principle and not just which are the close ones. Everyone's going to tell you about the close ones. You know, everything's a referendum on suburban moms or industrial Midwesterners or immigration freakers outers. How about a referendum on centrists? Because here's what I find happens. Uh, As we watch politics during the year, the last few months, there'd be all these primaries, and sometimes an extreme or immoderate or non-centrist candidate would sneak through. And sometimes with like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, it would be, well, she's definitely going to win. They just went with the uh, Democratic Socialist instead of the old guy. But sometimes you'll hear the analysis, ooh, that choice really imperils the party's chances come November. And now that November has come, we forget which ones were the times when they nominated the person who was maybe a little out of step with the district? I mean, there are 535 House races and 71 combined Senate and governor races. So who are these supposed extremists who have damned those electable centrists? Let's review. Over in North Carolina, you have the ninth district, with, which, which really should be a very winnable district for the Republicans. And I only say this because Republicans have won the district since 1963. It's a big Republican-leaning district. But what happened was the incumbent, Robert Pittenger, lost. He lost to a preacher man, a challenger, now the candidate, Mark Harris. And of Mark Harris, a local professor interviewed on WRAL, says is maybe, you know, 3% too much fire, 8% too much brimstone. Meredith College professor David McLennan says Harris may be too socially conservative. Harris's message is a little bit more difficult to sell to the number of women in that district and and how you've got young voters, you've got progressives. All right, so how's it going? Well, I'll tell you. 538 ranks Mark Harris's chances as being 53.3%. If Dan McCready beats him... You can bet that this is a referendum on Republicans going too far outside the center. Another instructive race, as far as this goes, is the Kansas governor's race, where you have the very Trumpian Chris Kobach defeating the more moderate Republican Jeff Collier. Collier would have likely cruised to victory. Now the polls in Kansas have Kobach up by one or down by one. Those are the last four polls. Plus one, plus one, plus one, minus one. Now, let's talk about Democrats. Now, most of the Democrat socialists or very liberal Democrats, uh, won election and beat more centrists in places where Democrats are going to win no matter what. So that was Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez or in Michigan, Rashida Tlaib, but... Andrew Gillum in Florida was seen as the much less centrist or more immoderate or leftier candidate. The only thing is the Florida governor's race is not a good referendum on centrism because the Republican Rick DeSantis is the way more extreme version of Gillum only on the GOP side. So not a good test case. And the Democrats, like I said, they don't have that many cases where you say, oh, my God, how'd they blow it with this one or that one? But what they do have is kind of the inverse. You have a bunch of moderates who the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, backed. So they backed these moderates. And the argument is by squeezing out the lefties, not only is that undemocratic, which is in your name, Steny Hoyer. Not only is that undemocratic, but in places like The Intercept argue, it's also bad for getting your people elected. Here, The Intercept took some tapes of a guy named Levi Tilleman, who was the left-year candidate who was squeezed out in Colorado's 6th District. In Colorado's 6th District, one of the most competitive seats in the country, the DCCC moved in early to select Jason Crow, a corporate lawyer, as the party candidate pushing resources, endorsements, and money to Crow while elbowing out progressive Democratic competitors. Now, again, I'm quoting the thesis. The Intercept writes, the party notably has a poor track record in selecting candidates that could win the general election. Well, let's get an update on Colorado's sixth, where the supposedly more centrist Jason Crow is an example of the party having a poor track record in picking candidates. Right now, five thirty-eight says he has an 88.3% chance of winning. So that would be a pickup from Mike Kaufman, who is the incumbent Republican. Another test case to see if the DCCC going with moderates over liberals is Texas's 7th District. So now you'll hear The Intercept reporter Lee Fung on the radio show Democracy Now! The establishment favorite was uh, is a, um, a corporate lawyer named Lizzie Fletcher. There was another candidate, uh, Laura Moser, who's an activist who's organized anti-Trump resistance efforts all across the country, uh, done a lot of digital organizing. And the DCCC took the unusual step where, right before the Texas primary, they dumped opposition research—that's the term of art for political dirt—on Laura Moser, the progressive candidate. And they said they did this because they thought that um, Moser was too liberal for that district. But that tactic kind of backfired. Moser actually soared in the polls after that dirt was dumped and uh, collected small-dollar dollar donations from donors all across the country and actually made uh, the Texas runoff. So, you know. Well, Moser lost that runoff, and now Fletcher is indeed the party nominee. And 538 says it's exactly a 50-50 shot. So we'll never know how Laura Moser, former slate writer, would have done But depending on how the establishment Democrat does, we'll get at least a sign, a small sign, if the DCC is good at what it does. So aside from the state of democracy and all that, the state of centrism is also, to a small extent, on the ballot. I know. That's why you'll be watching tomorrow. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produce the gist, always producing, I tell them, don't produce. Vote. DJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She's always crunching the numbers and sending out tweets. Don't crunch. Vote. Don't tweet. Vote. You know, you're good at social media. Pokemon, go to the polls. That's what they always say. The gist. Tomorrow I will be voting in a very easy to get to polling place, which I know about because it hasn't changed in years, in a state that does not try to jam me up if there's a hyphen on my registration form, for a series of offices where there's no real opposition and where none of the candidates do anything more than slightly disappoint me as opposed to threaten my material comfort to say nothing of my existence. So what I'm saying is I have electoral privilege. And what I'm further saying is that I still look at myself as some kind of hero sporting the I voted sticker and looking down on those who are, quote, just too busy. Now, think of it this way. Think of the esteem I will hold you in if you have to jump through some Brian Kemp-esque hoops to vote. So that is it. No more harangue. Just vote. And thanks for listening.